Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast, where your host, Chloe Mestagi, provides strategies to leaders and managers on how to repair critical issues in security and tech. We're glad you've tuned in. It's time to secure your strategy and your stakeholder approval. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hi everyone, my name is Chloe Mistagi and I'm your host today for Secure Your Strategy with ITSP Magazine. And today I have a guest named Paul. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born at a very early age. <laughs> it's great, great to be here. So my name is Paul Watts, uh, I'm right over from the United Kingdom and I'm currently at the Information Security Forum as their distinguished analyst. And my receding hairline um, probably tells you that I've been doing this for a while now. So I've been in IT for, for 28 years. I've been in IT security, information security, cyber leadership for, for around 18 years or so now in a, in a number of different um, uh, vertical sectors. We can we can probably talk about those yeah. as time permits, but that's kind of who I am. Have you ever seen there's like this uh, gif out there that has like, I know it's not baby Yoda, but it has the younger, like the baby Yoda basically. Yeah. And then that has the comparison to like Yoda, like yeah. one year later in InfoSec. I, I I feel it. It's like everyone is going to lose their hair or they're going to turn white or they're just wrinkles are coming in. I don't know. It's a well, stressful like, I mean, work this, environment. <laughs> this 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 haircut is an extra five minutes in bed. That's the way I sell it to myself. See? You know, I'm winning at life. It's all good. Oh, Ooh, that that's yeah. yeah. I mean, like, why spend so much time on hair when you don't have time to do anything, right? Oh, jeez. Yeah, exactly, this one is exactly great. Um, and so today we're gonna talk about like security leadership, where we are right now and where we're gonna be heading, and what are some ways that we can make it better. So yeah, Paul. Sure. You gave some talks at InfoSec Europe. Tell us a little bit about the talks that you gave. Yeah, so um, we, we covered, a, covered a few topics uh, in for Security Europe uh, this year, which was a, a fantastic event it's, uh, run every year at, uh, at the London Excel. Um, always good to be on the uh, speaker list there. Um, yeah, and I, I, I did a throwdown, uh, and then we talked about it in a panel, and the throwdown was about uh, security leadership. It's good to talk. And it's funny that what you mentioned at the start, Chloe, was um, I, I started the throwdown by saying, you know, if I had my time again, you know, 18 years into it, hair's all falling out, you know, like the whole Homer Simpson thing, you know, when every time he has a child, he pulls a little bit more hair out, kind of like that. And if I went back to the start and I gave myself, you know, that first day when I was sat in my car in my first job working for a, a financial services organisation, um, what would I tell myself? And, and I kind of pared it down to three things. It'd be interesting to, uh, you know, we'll see whether the listeners relate to any of this. So the first one, and, and this is a difficult pill to swallow, and I hope all my all my peers are sitting down right now. Uh, we're not the most important people in the room. Yeah, there, I've, I've said it. Yeah. Oh, my God, Paul. Shocker. Oh, no, you're going to start so a movement. So there you go. We, we are not the most important people in the room and you can't make yourself the most important people no. in the room. But hold that thought because all is not lost. The second thing I would say is if you kind of look at security as a product for a moment, think about our business as the customer. The best thing that we can do is compel that customer to want the product. 
Um, uh, very much like Steve's jobs used to do. Every time he released a new phone, we went, I want a new phone, but it's the same as the old phone. I don't care, I want a new phone. Um, you kind of want to get into that kind of mentality. What we don't want to be doing is forcing an investment in a product through fear and regulation because then no, nobody likes us. They got on, they want, they need to want to uh, invest in us. The third thing is something that a lot of us have been around for a while, really struggle with, and it's the importance of match pitch. Um, don't expect your customer to learn our language. They're not going to give a monkeys about SASE or CASB or DLP or AV or EDR or MLP or ABCDE or even F. We need to learn their language, i.e. we need to learn the language of business. And I think if you fast forward to where we are now, our roles as security leaders are very, very different. I spend a lot of my time um, when I've been practicing as a as a as a CISO, um, trying to compel my business to want my product, trying to sell the proposition. Now, you know, stateside it might be different, but in the UK we still got to earn our stripes, right? You know, we still need people to want to engage with us. And what that comes down to is recognizing security as value. And, you know, maybe we can we can go in a little bit on like that. But in short, I think the world's moved on in 18 years. It's a very, very different career than it was when I started, 100% for sure. Things have changed for the better, but it's given us some unique challenges, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think of like IT crowd and I wonder how different is it since then to now today? Has it become more corporate than IT crowd these days? Well, Jen Barber was uh, was onto something. Um, actually, when you go back to that very, very first episode when Renum's kind of outed her and said, you said, you know, computers, so I'm going to put you in the IT room down in the basement. Yeah. And Jen had to kind of concede. She didn't know the first thing about IT. Now, I'm hoping at this point, Chloe, now you called it out that everybody has watched the IT crowd. And if they have, I hope to God. I mean, if you're in this industry and you have been in IT at some point, you should have seen it by now. Standard issue. But, but what she said is, um, so there was a, I don't really want to spoil the first episode, but basically cutting a long story very, very short, Jen said, look, I can bring something to this because I know people. So whilst you, you, you've you got, you've got Moz and, uh, and, and, and co, uh, very good at the technical side of it, but can't string a sentence together, can't communicate particularly well. Jen said, well, I can set myself up as a relationship manager and I can kind of fill that gap. And as much as we all laughed at that, because it was obviously a sitcom that we all relate to, that's kind of where things have changed. We've realised now, as, as as information security practitioners, we need the Gen Barber. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we need Gen Barber. What we need is that broad portfolio of softer skills to complement our technical skills so that we can go in uh, to a boardroom, hold a conversation, a bit of small talk, and take a bit of an interest in what it is they're doing, rather than what we used to do, which was walk in with uh, a, a copy of ISO or a copy of HIPAA or High Trust or whatever, and say, so we've got to comply with this, um, or the regulator's going to shut us down, yeah. or we, we're going to have you know stateside issues or federal issues, and we've got to get this sorted. Um, very different world. I think um, I love the. I, I'm I'm really pleased you pulled up the IT crowd. I, oh, I didn't realize that and made so it over the good. pond. I'm very happy. Oh, it's so good. Oh. No, but you are right. I think that's the thing was that she was able to speak in a room. She was able to state a crisis, and people yep. took it seriously. Versus if they did, they would just be ignored. And it's not about like that they weren't being seen as equals or anything. It was more about 
it's not dumbing it down. And sometimes when they would talk to people, it was like, we'll dumb it down. But people don't want to feel that way. You know, they want to feel like equals to someone. Um, well, it's, but- especially in the in, especially in the boardroom. And one thing I've learned over the years is um, never surprise a boardroom, number one. Um, never make a boardroom feel they don't, they don't understand something. Don't make them think that you're the most power you know the most knowledgeable person in the room because they find that very very intimidating match pitch um and it comes back to the whole the whole thing of value and one of the other things i i talked about info security actually is i kind of see it now as an equation that needs to be constantly balanced and rebalanced and rebalanced you know in the old days it was easy we used to see the world for a risk register and it was about managing risk to tolerance Nobody had a clue what the word tolerance meant. But we all said, yes, we will manage risk to tolerance like the good androids we are. But was that necessarily adding value? Now, think about it, right? If, you, if you're if you a startup, uh, two years in, Series B funding, uh, you know, you've got investors chomping at the bit, wanting to see you accelerate your growth, build your, build your customer base, you know, speed to market, be really, really innovative. Um, the most important thing to that board at that point in time is agility. And here you are as the brand new CISO trying to make your mark and you're throwing security controls into the ether and you're watching those risks tumble down, but the boardroom still hates you. Why? Why? Because what you've done is you've pulled the handbrake on. You know, you, you, you're trying to pull the vehicle away and it's still in park. You know, all the, all the analogies in the world that you like. But basically what you've done is you've given no consideration to what that boardroom is trying to do at that point in time. It's an equation that needs to be managed. Cost, risk, agility. Now, and there's obviously a path out shall no, no cross, not cross because you've got legal and regulatory requirements. That's your baseline. Okay, you comply with all of that. Everything else is your blank canvas, right? So what are we trying to do as an organization? How do I balance cost, risk, and agility through the application of security controls so that we have a resilient organization? that is driving towards those organizational outcomes. It's not just about just managing risk in singularity. And that's where I'm sorry to say a lot of organizations are going wrong. And equally, they're going wrong if they're talking in the context of if a breach occurs and not when a breach occurs. We're past that point now. We're talking about resiliency. It's going to happen. When it happens, spot it quickly, roll with the punches, get back on your feet, dust yourself down, and get back out there and those dollars. You know, that's what it's all about now. Have you noticed, because I've noticed this personally, is that, you know, beforehand, cybersecurity was not something that, you know, boards would discuss as much. But then the pandemic happened and then there was a surge of breaches that happened in the in the first few years. And then now it's like, no, we have to care about it. We have to listen about it. I want to know more about it. Just don't don't dumb it down. Explain it to me. Don't talk to me like a child. And yeah. that that's kind of the thing. And you did bring up the, the whole thing is like the board is interested in cost risks. Also, you know, is if we put security first, does that mean we're going to stall innovation? And th- I think that's the thing that we have to always understand is that, you know, when we go into a room where they're discussing a product and we are accepted in that room to be in there at the very beginning don't kill the project and says say okay we can work around this but we have to keep these things in mind but when you're like no 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 this is this is a terrible idea this is there's going to be so many security flaws then you're not going to be invited back to the room 
Yeah, uh, it, it, equally, yeah, you know, if a breach happens and you go into the boardroom and there's plastic sheeting on the floor, you failed anyway, right? So, you, you know, you, you, you've you got to recognise and work with that organisation and, and that's top to bottom to recognise that it's a collective responsibility. You, you know, it's um, it, it, it's always disappointing when I hear stories, anecdotes about about CISOs that, that that are being exited when a breach occurs, and the reality of it is, and you know, and I empathise, and it's probably highly accurate that they've done what they can in the backdrop of the culture they find themselves in, but the boardroom just isn't taking it it seriously. And, uh, and you, you know, as controversial as this may sound, well, I'm going to say it out loud anyway, talk is cheap, right? Yeah. So a board can say that it's our top ticket, it's our top line agenda item, but actions speak louder than words. And what you've got to see is that translation to action. The pandemic, I think, was a really interesting time for uh, cybersecurity practitioners because we were able very rapidly to demonstrate a true value off, off the cuff. And actually, it felt really good, right? So... We suddenly found ourselves thrown into lockdown, whatever part of the timeline we were on. And, you know, organisations that weren't in the cloud, for example, were finding they had real difficulties. You know, um, organisations with thousands of employees trying to access on-premise uh, computing facilities through a VPN concentrator that was sized for 500. And immediately you're now thinking, right, this is probably the quintessential example of we've all got to work together, work the problem. Uh, you know Apollo uh, Apollo 13 style I love that film by the way it's just like just anybody who wants to kind of learn a bit about crisis management just watch, watch the film it's amazing Tom Hanks legend um I digress yeah so we, we were there in a situation so, so what are we going to do and somebody said oh I know well we could um we could take all the traffic that's bound for um Microsoft 365 and we could we could push that out directly right we could talk about split tunneling now now that's a swear word in those organizations where everything comes through and it's all on prem and it's defense in depth, yada, yada, yada. But now suddenly you're saying, okay, well, let's think about this. Let's think about the pros and the cons. You know, what could go right? What could go wrong? And, and before you knew it, you're kind of working this problem. You've agreed some concessions. Microsoft, God, God love them, gave us a little bit of a concession on on not, not moving the IP ranges around for a period of time. And we were able to hive off a lot of that traffic reduce the pressure on the concentrators and we could get some sort of stability back to our business. And, I, you know, and I presided over a couple of that sort of conversations. And do you know what? That felt really good. Because you're like, we work together to solve a problem. And then when the pandemic, I'm not going to say ended, but, you know, when things kind of started to revert a little bit back to normal, it was very much the situation you find yourself in when you're dealing with another crisis or incident. You know, you're kind of the hero of the hour and everybody's best friends and it's all great and the board love you and, oh, you know, after we'll make everything great. And then two weeks later, you know, they're dealing with a cash flow problem or they've got a problem with workforce or a competitor's rug pulled them and got to market quicker and you've forgotten about. And it's about keeping that momentum of of the relevance and the value that you, you, that you bring to the board's experience and the board's ambitions, you know, and that that's what, what you need to do. And it just requires us to completely repurpose and work very differently. I mean, Chloe, I'm sure you've heard of the ideology of shift left. Yeah. You know, the earlier you get us in the room, the less friction and we can do our stuff, right. do it in the background and do it well. And you end up with a, with a nice, secure ease delivery. Of course, it's never always that simple, but that is much better than the business saying, so we got this chat GPT stuff and we just thrown it in and we've spun up these chatbots and we've pushed them out and everything's great. Uh, right. And then you've got to go in and go, 
Oh, yeah. I thought about all of this stuff because then that's really painful because then you're taking things away that went live and that's customer experience damage, reputationally, extra cost. It's just so obvious to get in at the very start. But we have to, to my earlier point, compel our business to want us to be there, to get us involved. Um, And that requires us to change and it requires them to change. But largely it requires us to change. I think it has a lot to do with also being sensitive, having sensitivity of others and like having, trying to have empathy because they don't know what you know at the end of the day. So it's always nice is, is to always try to build that bridge, especially if your CISO isn't building that bridge with the developers for you to be that person who might be an advocate for the developers on the security team and try to build that bridge. Cause I think that's the thing. Whenever we talk about shift left, there's no point person we just keep talking about, but there's no person that we have stated out loud. This is the responsible person for building that bridge and keeping that bridge sustained. And because we keep saying shift left, I don't think it's actually working or it's happening really. And because there is no person who's the designated responsible person for it. And and, uh, I think that a lot of the reasons why that happens is steeped in the tradition and the heritage of cybersecurity. And and we have been a master of our own demise. We've made things harder for ourselves because we've created a culture that's quite stifling and quite constrained. Silo. We're very silo. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And everything is about jumping through hoops. So we're back to the Gen Barber IT crowd world. You know, they're in the basement for a reason. Because they're out of sight, out of mind. You know, they do what they need to do. And if something breaks, you shout at them, they fix it, and they go away again. And that's how security used to be. Or you were doing your statutory audit every year. And, you know, the security team would be wandering around doing their audit and assurance stuff and just getting in the way. And, you know, where's, where's the value in that? But what you need to be doing is creating a culture that demonstrates that you can be fresh and you too can be innovative. Um. And you need that underlying culture to um, support the, the, um, the, the important point that security is no longer something that the technology team can do for you. They have not got your back anymore. Security is about people and process and technology. And what that means is that everybody has a part to play. Uh, during the pandemic, and again, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, you know listeners' experiences of this, um, I had employees were calling me and calling my team up um, and they were telling us they felt vulnerable. And, this, now, and I found this really interesting. So I said, okay, well, what makes you, what makes you feel vulnerable? And they said, well, I, I, I'm at home and it's me and uh, a little cable and, and, and nothing else. And I, I feel responsible. And, you know, what happens if, and, and, but when I'm in the office, you know, I know, I know your, your team have got my back and, you know, we've got routers and firewalls and, you know, all this crazy stuff and badges that I have to swipe to get in and, you know, and, 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 and that was all gone. And it made me realize that actually a lot of our workforce absolutely get security is important, but they've been allowed to abdicate their responsibility for it because we've just gone and done it for them in the background. And this is something to remember. I think we can deconstruct the journey that we've been on as a community of practice into three three things. Back in the old days, we did security to the business. It was all about compliance, regulation, law, yada, yada. Then we started doing security for the business because the business started to have an appreciation that risks were bad 
and bad things happen and there's bad guys and girls out there and it all has to be managed, but they didn't really know how and it was just easier for us to do it for them. Very transactional. We're now moving into a world where innovation is key. You hear the, old, the, the, you hear the phrase security at the speed of business. It's absolutely right. Technology is completely demystified now. My mum with a credit card and a web browser can hire a data center in the sky. That's scary stuff. If you've met my mother, that's scary stuff. The reality of it is, you know, that technology now does not require the IT crowd to to buy it, build it, turn it on, make it run and maintain it. They can do all of that themselves. What that now means is that we need to do security with them. They're going to be running off alongside, uh, you know, off into the distance doing cool new stuff with everything from chat GPT to Azure and everything in between. Um, but they need us to be running alongside them at the same speed they are doing security with them. And they need to recognize that it's a collaboration uh, and a meeting of hearts and minds through people, process and technology that allows everybody to be successful. And, and I appreciate, Clay, that that, that that sounds like a rose-tinted view of the world, but got to start somewhere, right? You know, and that that's, that's the ideology, the vision that we need to drive towards. I 100% agree on that. I think that's, it's really hard to try to have people understand why they're not listening or having apathy in the room. Yeah. I always find like people that have apathy towards security is because they haven't had a breach themselves. So like they haven't had someone go into their email account or their yeah. social media account. Cause I guarantee you that once that happens at least one time, you will change the state of mind where you're going to be like, I'm not going to reuse the same password over and over. I'm going to use MFA. I want to be safe. And I think that's the thing is like when you start finding those people in the organization that understand what the potential could be for them and the risk, I think that's when everything kind of is the game changing moment where you get people no longer having apathy anymore. You have people that are like, oh no, I need to care about this because I've had it happen to me and now I'm super paranoid about the future if I don't do these things. I, I, I think it's I, I think it's a really interesting point. So you know, normally when we talk about training and awareness and culture in an organization, it's all about the organization. The biggest successes that I've had personally and, and you know, peers when I've spoken to them have is to make it personal. So the best thing you can start, you know, if you're not winning the hearts and minds, you know, like, where do I go with this? is make it personal. So start to talk about security in the context of day-to-day. -day. So, you know, who 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 in the room has, uh, you know, been, been to an ATM, used the ATM, got some money out, thought nothing of it, and then five days later, you know, the bank's calling you saying your, your bank account's been emptied out and, you know, you realise you've used a compromised ATM or something like that, or you've had a credit card cloned, or someone's taken your credentials and taken your, your social media account over. That, that resonates with people at a very, very personal level. If you want to go a step further, you can start to talk about the importance of protecting our young online. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's actually quite a, an interesting one because you then end up with a two-pronged set of vulnerability. The, uh, the individual says, I don't know how to protect myself. And then the hammer blow is, and I don't know how to protect my child who is sat in the next room on an iPad doing, I have no idea what, and I've literally, and uh, this metaphor won't translate well for, for, for our, our listeners in the States, but I've basically taken a child and I put them in an East End at London pub. You wouldn't do that because that's yeah. not an environment for a child. The child is not 
developed or situationally aware enough to process that environment so why on earth would you put them in a situation on social media where they're being bombarded with i mean i see stuff of my twitter feed that makes me blush for goodness sake you know and i'm pushing 50 so how is a nine or ten year old child supposed to process that so then you have a situation where where the employee is saying it's not just about me I've got to worry about my children. Guess what? You're now having a conversation about security and you start to build that up and recognizing the value. And then you can start to think about the corporate agendas because when people are protecting themselves online and their children online, they're bringing those behaviors to work. And what you've done is you've started to change the culture without enforcement of the corporate agenda. It's a, a longer a longer pathway but I, I, I guarantee you that people will be more interested in having a conversation with you on a social and personal level. And, and the other thing, and I think you said this earlier, is be curious about your organisation. You know, I've worked for fast food companies. I've worked for the UK's railroad operator. Um, I've worked in financial services. And as much as I can do, I take myself out and I go and learn the business. So I've made a pizza, delivered pizzas. I've stood on the middle of the railroad in the middle of the night being shouted at by an engineer who says, your 30 second iPad timeout risks me not being able to give this railroad back at five o'clock in the morning, which means people can't go to work, which means the government get involved, which means everybody gets shouty and gnarly. And it's all because you've not taken the time to put yourself in my shoes. And when you hear that for the first time, that's a real leveler. And you realise that you're not delivering the value because you're not putting yourself in the business's um, shoes. And it's really important. It's the one tip that I would say to anybody out there. If you can't remember the last time you left your basement, get out there. Yeah, seriously. I I think it definitely plays in that role of having empathy. I think our industry in general, we need to do better on that because if we're expecting others to do it, we have to do it ourselves. We have to work on it ourselves and, and like you shared, which is like, understand the business, understand the industry you work in, understand the different players within it. What are their pains? Because if you can figure out what their pains are, you can help them. You want to find out where do you have that bridge, that connective tissue? Because if you have that connective tissue, then a magical things happen. But until you can create that connection or this sense of like, hey, I care about you, you care about me, this kind of thing nothing is going to get done. It just seems like we're just preaching in a echo chamber, I guess, but no one's yeah. in that chamber, but it's just like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things I feel like we could really work on. And, and one of the things I definitely have noticed a lot in this industry is a lot of people have are very much driven by ego. I know that sounds really weird, but what I mean is, for example, yeah, right. Um, but it's just like the idea that you already know everything, but the thing is we have to remember the reason we got in this industry because we were curious. We wanted to know how, how like far this whole goes. We also wanted to know how things work. And it was the curiosity that drove us to go into the hacker mindset or the security mindset, because we have what ifs playing in our head all the time. And how can we make this better? A hundred percent. So, you know, the thing that the, the, the thing that inspired me to get into this line of work and so make you laugh, it's a film that celebrated its 40th anniversary uh, in June. And it was a film called War Games. Starring oh, yes. Oh, my God. Ronald Broderick Reagan's favorite movie. Yeah. 
No, and, I don't think it was the trigger, but... something in my mind. And it was, and it's exactly what you said, Chloe. You know, I started thinking about the what if. You know, what if David Lightman, who was the lead character, you know, what if that had gone the, the, the whole length? Can computers actually be that powerful? Okay, well, there's a little bit of artistic license in the film, but I, I love it. I watched it last week, actually, and just because it's 40 years old. It, it, it's never it's never left me. You know, that was the first kind of warning bell in the middle of the Cold War that, you know, somebody accidentally stumbling across a vulnerable computer system could get it to behave in a way that people just took for granted. <clears throat> because back in the 80s, you know, computers were, you, you know, they were in Stanford, they were in the military, they were, you know, that, but they weren't in everybody's house and they were authoritarian. The computer said, jump, you jumped. So if a computer's telling you you're about to be attacked by the Russians, um, you took that seriously, yeah. which was the whole backdrop of 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 the of the film, um, and that's that's what got me going. And you're, you absolutely nailed it there. It's that curious. It's that what if, yeah. Um, and it's about that trust issue that we now have with computers and with misinformation. You know, we can't trust everything. Doesn't mean that we have to live our well our lives in perpetual paranoia, but we need to challenge ourselves. You know, when the computer tells you something. Or when, uh, you know, a search engine gives you an answer to a question, because let's face it, we're a little bit lazy, you know, hit that, I'm feeling so lazy problem. now. <laughs> right, right? But I, and I don't know what's happening in the States, but in the in the UK, uh, we we are teaching our children the basics, fundamental basics of using search engines and things like that. But what we need to do is lift those children out of that and say, right, so you just ask Google, other search engines are available, about uh, Sir Winston Churchill. And you've taken it on trust that the first article, which just happened to be Wikipedia, other public access services are available. And you've gone, right, that's got to be right. So how do you know? Cross-reference, never trust, verify, which is the, the fundamental principle of zero trust. But when you're thinking about information management, we have to teach our children to, to, to understand and trust what it is they're looking at and never take it for granted it's scary that you can manipulate elections you can change the course of public feeling towards a particular individual or a team or something like that just by saying things online people will believe whatever they want to believe and they'll believe computers because they're trustworthy and you and i know and all the listeners know that that isn't true. So there's a lot to do to help re-educate and reposition our, our children, the next generation of workers, to, to, to trust nothing, just to always verify uh, and cross-reference um, so that they know that they're I making that. fully informed decisions. I love that, uh, the whole verification thing. One thing, so I live in the UK, so I, I did my undergrad in the US and I did my master's in the UK. Okay, and the cool. thing that was so different was the fact of it felt like it was feeding into your curiosity. So in the mm. UK, what would happen is like, here's the syllabus, here are all the books, you know, and in the US, it's like, these are all the books you need to read. But in the UK, it's more of like, these are the suggested reads but what we want you to do is to read the things you're passionate about we want you to continue to feed that curiosity we don't want to bore you so here are some suggested reads but we want you to go beyond that we want you to actually go and read the sources from that book so you read that book and then look at the sources and then go from those sources and try reading that so it's like you verify the actual original written uh well script or the you know the research paper and that changes things because you're having to verify instead of just immediately trust. 
And it's one of those things, like I remember my first poli sci class and basically the instructor said, whatever you do, always question what you read. You want to always question things, have curiosity, ask the questions of why is it this happening? How did this happen? What's yeah. the real problem here? And if we ask these questions, then that makes us you know, more likely to understand a greater idea of how the world works. But also we don't quickly jump to a conclusion that could be a misinformation. Yeah. And we've projected that forward, actually. So the Information Security Forum does a bit of flagship research. Every year we release a paper called Threat Horizon. And Threat Horizon is trying to project a world three years from now through um, pestle dynamics. We try and predict what we think the next big, big problem is going to be for uh, cyber information security and what to do with it. Um, and we get it right more than we get it wrong. So we predicted ransomware quite a way back. You know, I don't want to blow our own trumpets, but we are, you know, we're pretty good at this stuff now. Um, one of the things we did in 2024 for the 24 release, the paper was called The Disintegration of Trust. And it plays on all the things that we've just talked about. So, you know, the IDC predicts that we're sitting on 150 zettabytes of data by 2025. Now, they called that out in 2018. That number is largely verified. In fact, if anything, they think it may be somewhere between 180, 150 through 180 um, zettabytes of data. You think about the traditional ways of validating and assuring data. Um, you can't do that with that amount of data. And the speed of, of creation and consumption, it's near real time. You know, you've got Internet of Things devices that are creating data, spitting it out. Verification is very, very, very challenging. And, um, you know, we kind of projected that, you know, those trust models will be shattered. If you think of situations where you're pumping that data and that reasoning real time into machine learning algorithms and so on and so forth, that's, if you poison that data well and you're pushing garbage into those those um, those algorithms, guess what? You're going to get garbage coming out the other end. So if we start to become wholly dependent on 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 machine learning models or AI or things like that, um, or we continue to to propel ourselves into a a data economy that's showing no end or 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 you know no, it's not going to slow down anytime soon. Well, how do we how do we assert integrity in all of these models? And it's you know if you think about the CIA triad: confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Availability we dealt with very early on DDoS, all those wonderful things. Confidentiality we we you know we had a real life lesson in how important it was to you know regard the sanctity and security of personal data through things like the General Data Protection Regulation and uh, you know the the equivalents over in uh, over in the US. Um, but now we're having to worry about integrity, which is we're pumping all this data in and we're just trusting it's great. We're trusting it's golden and we're embracing automation and we're embracing AI and ML. I wouldn't be so hasty. And we So we talk extensively about the damages or the dangers of poisoning data wells and basically just seeing that trust model disintegrate. How do we get that back? And that's the question I'm going to leave you with because I'm not answering that on this <laughs> on this podcast. But it, it, it's a massive issue that we're now really only just starting to face into, and we are seeing real world experiences of what happens when we we blindly trust the data that we that we consume and create, and it leads us in the wrong direction, societally, as a business, or as a person. Um, and we have to think very differently about that if we want to carry on doing this stuff safely. It doesn't mean that we don't. This is all about what we said at the start. 
You know, it's about the collaboration. It's about working in unison with the business. We want what they want. We're here to help them do it in a way that's safe and balances risk with reward and cost and agility. How can we help? We just need to change the way we pitch our tent and not just bulldoze ourselves into a meeting and go, wait, 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 I'm the most important person in the room and I wrote the policy. Nobody cares anymore. No one cares about your policies. They just want the thing Nobody to work. Cares. That's that's the reality. And and that's what we're always going to be against, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, and the, the, you're completely right about the whole machine learning and the design. The thing that keeps me up at, at night is knowing that there's really not too many people in security that understands how machine learnings are like how they're designed. And this is troubling because if we don't have enough security researchers like bug bounty hunters or, or anything like that, that aren't aware how to manipulate it or how to work it and how it's designed and configured. Um, the thing is, is like those vulnerabilities are just going to sit there. And that scares me because like the thing that goes through my mind is say, for example, you had data poisoning in your set and say that, you know, you have a tank and it's running on AI and that AI was told that anytime it saw this other tank, that it was a Russian tank. But say someone like a threat actor gets into your database, changes, you know, everything, got some data poisoning going on there. Then anytime it sees like a school bus, it will see it as a Russian tank. And that stuff keeps me up at night because I'm pretty sure that's something that's already happening at this time. And why we as security folks, we need to really quickly learn how ML works, how it's designed and, you know, what are all the upcoming issues that we need to be afraid of when it comes to AI? I mean, if you want a comparable threat scenario back in, the, I, think it, 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 I think it was the 80s, might have been the 90s in the UK, we had um, activists, Lone Wolf. Uh, and what they were doing was they were calling the media and they were saying, uh, here's a supermarket and I've injected poison into a product in the supermarket. I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, in order for me to tell you where the problem is, you've got to have to do these things. So basically just a, a, a very um, archaic ransomware there, right there, an analog ransomware attack. Now, the entire supermarket is compromised because you now can't trust which one of those things is going to poison somebody. So the entire asset is burned. Right. Now think about a data-driven organization. Let, let's do biomed. But med, medical science just developed a brand new vaccine for a disease that, you know, we, we won't do COVID. We'll pick another one, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you get a phone call to say, um, all of the research data that you've been using to create this vaccine, we've been manipulating certain aspects of that data, um, which now means you can't trust that product. We'll tell you what it is, but you're going to have to cross our palm with silver. There you go. That's the modern equivalent right there. You know, if, 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 the, if the outcome is so significant that you need that total integrity of everything in that data lake, all I've got to do is poison one thing and then not tell you what it is. Now, what do you do? I mean, there's the, there's the future threat seems, right there. And that's the reason why we need to stay curious and be in each other's shoes. Well, yeah. thank you, Paul, so much for having, it was lovely to have you. I must have you back on in the near future. Uh, for everyone, I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you again, Paul. It was great to have you. You're very welcome and uh, have a great day. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Secure Your Strategy Podcast with Chloe Mastagi, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSBMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. 
If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.